want to thank all of our listeners for several years of dedicated and loyal listening throughout the Halo Talks 400 podcast completed to date. We're going to 1,000 by 2024. If you're so inclined, we'd love to have you go to iTunes for us, fill out a review so we can keep this podcast rolling globally. We are now on Chartable's top lists and moving up the charts. Also, if you want to educate yourself in the new year, please go to thehaloacademy.com. Take a look at what we've done with 150 executives in the Halo sector to get them smarter, get them prepared for capital raises, and also more winning. Thanks. Have a great season. Let's go. Or on Halo Talks NYC, I have the pleasure of bringing the accomplished fitness instructor, master of many domains, a friend of yours and ours. Welcome to the Halo sector, Natalia Melman Etrazella. You're on your first Halo Talks. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So as I was looking at your background, you know, you've obviously taught at Equinox. You went to Columbia, you went to Stanford, you wrote some books, you've done some really interesting podcasts. Um, so you're clearly overqualified for being on our show, so we appreciate your time. Um, you know, we're trying to further the Halo sector and solve loneliness, obesity, and diabetes, and we figured you might be one of the places that we could go to to figure out how to do that. So maybe you could start off with some of your background and why you decided to make this your life's work. Absolutely, and I think I, I saw your guest list. You got a lot of esteemed guests on here, so I'm <laughs> honored to be part of the lineup. Um, so yeah, my background, you know, um, academically, I mean, I'm a historian by training. I um, was a history major undergrad, thought I wanted to work in magazines, but then had a lot of like loans to pay off. My parents are professors, so I didn't want to be a professor. So I actually started out on Wall Street. Then I ran screaming the other direction. I was a classroom teacher, went to get my PhD in history because I just would always look around the world. And my question was always like, how did we get here? How did we get here? Oh. And then I realized that there is a whole job where you can like spend all your time writing about how we got here. So I went to get a PhD in history. And um, during that whole time growing up, like I was never athletic, but I found the gym when I was a teenager, like fitness, not sports, totally became an important part of my life. I sort of lived a little bit of a double life where I was like this very scholarly kind of like academically minded person. But then I was like, working at the front desk at gyms to get free memberships. I got certified, et cetera. And, um, you know, long story short, now I am a history professor at the New School in New York City. And this book, Fit Nation, which is coming out in January, um, really brings together my work as a historian and also my like deep engagement and honestly love and respect for the fitness industry. So I kind of analyze it from a historical perspective and even think about what the future might look like. Yeah, I'm a big uh, John Meacham uh, listener and reader uh, who's a, a political historian for the people that don't know. Um, and I've uh, during COVID, I basically took up as much of, he, uh, of his content that he provided. And I will say that the one thing that upset me about him, and I try to reach out to him about this, he, he wrote a book and then he decided not to read his own audio book. And I love his voice and his, his delivery. I was like, how could you do that to me? Like you took all this time to write this history book. Like at least read it to me. Um, so I hope so that funny. you read, I hope that you read your audio book to people for someone that cares about who the voice is behind it. I'm so happy that you say that because I actually fought to be the one reading my own audio book and I am going to be the only oh, one. It's not, we haven't recorded yet. So it's coming out a little later than the hardback, but it will happen. So I'm glad to know it matters to people like you. Yes, it, <laughs> it, it definitely matters. 
You know, so, you know, you've obviously taken a lot of different steps. You know, when you, when you take a look at the history of, of exercise, and I started out working in a private equity fund back in 1999, and we bought Gold's Gym uh, International, and we kind of, we're trying to figure out, like, what's the DNA of, of Gold's Gym, and how do we potentially modify the D- DNA without destroying it? Uh, one of my dumb ideas at the time was like, let's call it Gold's Fitness, which kind of got squashed because I didn't understand the history. Um, and then what we did was we took the Oscar logo, which was the uh, bodybuilder, and we basically turned that guy into a uh, silhouette. So you didn't wow. see all of his muscles. And we took about 40 pounds off of him. And we told all the franchisees, look, put the Oscar inside the club and put Man. Gold's Gym on the outside because there's some intimidation about that aspirational body that was not yeah. resonating. Um, and now I think 55 to 60% of the members of Gold's Gym nationwide are women, you know, which kind of changed the paradigm and, and the flip of like what, what this is to others, which is the authority and not necessarily yeah. like the, the, the marketing logo. So talk about like what you've seen in the industry and how people have maybe, you know, evolved over time. Absolutely. And I love that you started with that anecdote because the first gym that I ever like saved up and spent money to join was a Gold's Gym franchise. And that was it. Yeah, that was in the 1990s. And then the first gym I worked at was a world gym location in New York City. And exactly what you're talking about, this was in the mid 90s. And it's kind of a good way in to talk about these industry changes. Sure. Something that I didn't know at the time, because I was just like a girl behind the desk, like what I didn't know I was witnessing is that World Gym, which as you know, had kind of similar DNA to Gold's gym and being associated with bodybuilding, like that was the nineties and they were working really hard to kind of make this transition to be like a quote unquote health club. And so what I remember seeing is that they moved all of the heavy weights to like this part of the gym that was really like far away. And then they built out a juice bar and they had this like glass walled aerobics studio that where they Uh started offering yoga classes too. And I remember conversations among members that were kind of like, what's happening here? Like something's really changing. And to me, that's like a good lens to understand like one important moment in this transformation in fitness in America of going from something that was like really weird to most people and a subculture that was about big dudes and like grimy basements pumping iron to being something that today we associate with one women being a huge component of the, of the, of the, um, you know, population, the client base, but also that's like building big muscles is like one tiny part of that. And there are a lot of reasons that has happened. I think it has happened as like one exercise science has changed. Like it's a huge deal. I'm sure you know, 1968, this book aerobics comes out. Kenneth Cooper Mm -hmm. writes it. Like it introduces the idea of cardio. So that's like a huge shift. Um, But then I also think as we have come to talk about exercise as connected, not to just like physical outcomes and muscle building, but to mental health, community building, um, and other kinds of outcomes, that's really expanded who's considered to be a likely gym goer. And so that expansion story is something that's been basically the story of fitness for the last 50 years. Um, Yeah, for like the last 50 years, I would say. So, so, you know, you've worked in the club. Sounds like you've been pretty much an avid, you know, user of uh, many different clubs. What worked for Gold's Gym back in the day when I first got involved was they used to have a $100,000 uh, body transformation challenge. And they had before mm-hmm. and after pictures. And I feel like a lot of the big health clubs have got so many different amenities and so many different group programming and personal training and kids care and daycare and all this other jazz that 
they kind of got so much in there that they kind of forgot what the messaging was or what am I really selling you? And I don't like the word sales, but what am I convincing you that, look, I am willing to get you results if you trust me and, and go with the process. So what, what do you think we're missing? Or has there been something that maybe is now an aha moment where it's like, hey, look, this is exactly what people want. If you look at Orange Theory, you know, I want results. I want data. You know, I want community. How, how do you kind of see the ideal, you know, location marketing? Yeah, well, I think, you know, honestly, it's such a mature and big industry that there people want different things. So there's going to be different stuff that resonates with different people. But I do think you're right that we hit a kind of peak moment of like so many amenities and bells and whistles. Like I would say in markets like New York City, LA, like just before the pandemic, I mean, I remember going into a new boutique fitness place and it had like disco balls and a bar and like seven screens and like 19 different kinds of equipment in a 45 minute class. And I was like, what the hell's going on here? Like, this is just too much. And I think, you know, obviously the pandemic in a really sad way dealt like a real body blow to the studio fitness industry. But I do think that it's pushing the kind of soul searching in the industry that you refer to, which is like, what are we really doing here? And why are people showing up? And I think part of it, yeah, results. I mean, results, what kind of results? Some people do want physical transformation. They're looking for weight loss. They're looking to build strength. But I do think that as the gym going populace has become more diverse, not everybody's looking to like lose inches. Like there are people looking to have mobility, flexibility, be able to pick up their grandchildren, people who are disabled, who were never thought of as gym consumers before, who want to be able to have like adaptive equipment. So I think that there is, um, I think we're in a moment a kind of like back to basics, but I would caution against saying that that basics is just like, I want the before and after bikini shop because I do think the industry has moved on in a lot of ways from like, oh, this is just about like looking better in summer. Like, I'm glad we've, we're kind of leaving that part behind. Sure. Yeah. You know, as you took a look at, at all the data that you put together, you know, on the history size of the, you know, exercise uh, obsession, you know, can you, can you fill us in on some of the highlights of the book and, you know, where you think maybe there were aha moments that maybe didn't go as planned or that we should have taken a left instead of a right? Oh, totally. So, I mean, one thing I think is really interesting and to me, like certainly being alive in the moment that we are and like you guys talk about the halo industry, right? Halo suggests like that virtuous, like angelic feeling that you get from participating in exercise and recreation. So, and, and that's, I think, very much in keeping with like where we are today, where like if you work out, it's like you feel like you did something good. People look at you, you run marathons. Oh, you must be disciplined and like a moral person. And I subscribe right. to that thinking in a lot of ways. I think exercise is like objectively a good thing for the most part. One of the things that was so shocking in taking this long view, like I started in like the 1890s, is that working out used to be weird and suspicious. And if you were someone who wanted to hang out in a gym, you were suspect. And like, what did oh. that look like? Well, for men... If you were somebody who cared about your appearance and your body and wanted to keep company with other men in these like weird, sweaty gym dungeons, I mean, honestly, everybody thought that you were gay, like you were seeking wow. out the company <laughs> of other men. And some of those gyms were really places that men seeking the company of other men would hang out. If you were a woman who wanted to exercise regularly, the idea was like, well, you know, lifting heavy things or running or doing anything strenuous, it's going to compromise your fertility, your uterus is going to fall out and what kind of 
woman wouldn't want to have babies. You're going to get muscles, which are masculine. And, and this is like kind of funny, you're going to cultivate these unfeminine like character traits. You're going to be competitive and individualistic. And so anybody, and there were always people who wanted to train, right? But they were suspicious. And so when I went back into like the diaries and the writings of these early strength enthusiasts, they were like bending over backwards to be like, we're not weirdos. Like, wow. this is good. Like, we shouldn't be outcasts because we like this stuff. And I found that that was just so interesting because we have pivoted like almost a 180 to today. If you say you work out, it's like, oh, you're, you know, like, good job. Good job. Um, right. So that was kind of like really interesting um, to me because it just speaks to like such a shift. And I think the other thing that was super interesting is like I spent a bunch of time looking at like this mid-century moment when like Eisenhower and JFK were like all in on PE, right? And it was like the middle of the Cold War. And the idea was like, Americans are getting soft. Like JFK writes in Sports Illustrated about the soft American being this huge threat to national security. And like, I kind of knew that story. I, I think a lot of people still don't, but like, talking about the way that like being someone who's deconditioned and out of shape is like, a moral and a civic problem. And that like, if we're going to win the Cold War, like we got to get in shape. And so they really got a decent amount of investment in PE. What I did not realize, which is super interesting, is that the part, some of their main adversaries in trying to get those phys ed programs passed were like, other cold warriors who were saying, no, 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 we need like, you know, kids to be learning technology and science and math. And I don't know why you want them doing push-ups. Like all of that work on the body is detracting from this work on the mind. Now, why yeah. is that interesting? If you're like a cold war history dork, that's just like objectively interesting. But I do think it's super interesting in terms of understanding where we are today, because that fight that they were having speaks to the fact that at that time, no one was connecting body and mind. Nobody right. was saying, hey, if these kids are more fit. They're going to do better at school. They're going to be better adjusted. That's an asset. Like nobody was making that connection. The presumption was if these kids are spending time running sprints and climbing ropes and all of that, okay, they might be more fit as soldiers, but they are not. They're going to be losing out on the intellectual side. And I think a big story of how we got to where we are today is now. Now we consider training the body as interconnected with like training the mind and that we have that kind of like holistic sense. And it's, I, it's, I overall it, think that's good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting you bring that up because on, on ESPN, they just had a 150 year um, history of college football and college football was really first started by the Ivy leagues to basically keep men stronger in order totally. to not have them become soft. And then it got so violent to the point where SDR basically had all the deans of the Ivy League schools come to the White House and said, look, if you don't clean this up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prohibit it. Um, mm -hmm. And that's basically what started from a running game and like gang tackling. There were literally like people that would die during a, a football game in college. And then, you know, he said, hey, you got to clean this up. And that's what basically started the forward pass was to open up the field so they wouldn't have people, you know, gang tackling and being on top of each other. Um, so it's interesting how that you know, you say like, hey, I've got great minds that are in the Ivy League. I want them stronger, but at the same time, I'm not connecting the mind and the body. I'm just trying to now protect the body, even though I'm, I, I, want, I don't want softness. 
Oh, 100%. And it's super interesting. That whole, I, I take this up in my in my book because like a lot of times in our culture, we kind of separate sports and fitness, but like we're living through all of it at the same time. And so at that same time that, you know, folks in the Ivy League are fighting about like football and what that should look like, they're also like building these recreation and intramural programs, which actually engage a lot more people. But because as a culture, we tend to care more about like big game football as a history than like somebody going and walking around a track. We don't tend to know as much about that past. But yeah, no, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. So, you know, as you take a look at the fact that, you know, only 20% of the people exercise, um, before COVID, I heard some stat or or a directive on behalf of a casual dining restaurant that they were going to make the booths bigger to accommodate larger people. That just kind of said, all right, here's like a, an epidemic and we're going to basically, you know, lean into the epidemic to allow people to, to me bigger, obviously, and maybe this is a little bit of a touchy subject, but being obese, you know, in, in 95% of the cases, obviously you got people that have thyroid issues and they're on medications that don't allow them to do certain things. Most of that is a, is a lifestyle choice. It's a decision. It's a lack of discipline. Um, and you can either treat that as a society with kids gloves, or you can treat it as a, as a potential penalty. You know, if you get auto insurance and you have a, a clean auto record, you get 15% off your auto insurance. Um, you know, there, there's incentives that companies are using now to say, hey, if you don't smoke and you do a certain amount of steps a day and you do other things that make you a healthier employee, that's obviously going to turn into a lower insurance claim against me as the company that's providing it. So how do you kind of look and say, you know, we're in this, we're in this kind of, you know, politically correct era of him, her, he, she, we, I, whatever that is on LinkedIn. I'm not really sure. However, at the same time, we got a problem. We got to address this problem head on and letting it go is not the way to do it. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it is Obviously, so complicated. you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I hear yours. Um, you know, and this is sometimes when I say, well, I'm not that kind of doctor, right? I have a PhD in history. I'm not, an, uh, uh, you know, an obesity specialist. But no, obviously I care deeply and, and know something about these issues. So what I think is that like, yeah, you're absolutely right that like to a certain extent, like obesity and any sort of like lifestyle related illness is a question of choices, right? And of, cho of the choices that we make every day of what we put in our bodies, whether we move, whether we don't, et cetera. You know, on the other hand, something that I try to push, and I want to acknowledge that like full stop, because there are people who say, that's not, you know, that, how dare you say that? That's just fat shaming. And I think that that is unproductive. I do think, though, at the same time, like particularly in the kind of fitness and diet industry, often we act like individual choice is the only thing. And that if you're not making those choices, well, then you look a particular way and it's all on you. And I think that that's not right because I do think like, let's just stay in the realm of exercise, but food too, depending on like where you live, how much money you have, the kind of job you have, et cetera, it's just a lot harder to make those choices to live a healthy lifestyle and have a body that, you know, reflects it um, for certain people than for others. I mean, in a very like small example of that, I think of the fact like, you know, the running world and I've run marathons, I like love running and everything, but there, that's probably the part of the fitness industry where that language of like, all it takes is willpower and discipline and a pair of sneakers. It's like very loud, right? And in some ways it's accurate. You don't need a whole health club membership to run. But I even think like, I have so many privileges, like, where I live, et cetera, sure. what I look like. But like my husband who's six, three can 
decide to go running at 5 a.m. in the dark, at night, everything. I will tell you, I go running outside only when it's light out. I got my headphones turned down and I live in a very safe neighborhood. And I think about that. What would it mean if I was black? What would it mean if I lived in a neighborhood with no streetlights? Like, and I think that's one example of the fact it's just that much harder to make those personal choices for a lot of folks. And I, of course, a lot of people do. I mean, someone I've written about who I admire tremendously is this guy, Cosmar T, who was in prison and was obese. Yeah, yeah, we, we interviewed gonna, him. Great guy, yeah. Con amazing body. guy. Yeah. Such a phenomenal, I love his work too, like just to shout him out a little bit because he is that example of someone in the worst circumstance who did make those personal choices against all these barriers, transformed his body, built a business. But one of the things that I really appreciate about his work is like he's super aware of all of the structural factors that make it really freaking hard to do the extraordinary thing that he did. And so I think like we've got to find a way to talk about obesity and health and like morality, quite honestly, that isn't just about like, huh, well, you look that way, like make better choices because I don't think that's fair. I have childcare. I have, a, you know, all of these things make it easier to work out and to eat healthy food. It's cheaper to eat yeah. non-healthy food. So I think that's super important. I mean, one of the things that you brought up, which I've never really put these three words together, but, you know, fitness choices is a social justice issue. 100%. And as I think back to how health club operators or boutique operators find real estate, Okay. And they do look, tell me what the household income is and the density over a three mile radius, over a five mile radius. I mean, if you want to talk about discriminatory algorithms, like bam, there you go. That's the first one you can look at. So, you know, that necessarily doesn't drive profitability because the rents in lower income markets are obviously much lower. Um, but there's a choice to go in and say, okay, you know, the, the Equinox once said, um, you know, you'll find Equinox in the top markets, but you're never going to find us in Albuquerque. You know, it was, it's, it was said as a joke, but I mean, it was serious. Um, yeah. So when you think about, you know, the democratization of fitness, um, is there, and there are some companies like Retro Fitness right now has got like an urban program that they're setting up where a percentage of the royalty goes back to the community. Um, but how do we kind of like get a capitalist society to start to say, Hey, maybe I have an obligation to go into these neighborhoods, not necessarily like what the Buxton, you know, report says on like what my scoring is in real estate. Oh, totally. It's such, it's like, a, the, it's the perfect question. I mean, and I think that there are a bunch of answers to it. First of all, like I'm enough of a capitalist to say it's no business owners like responsibility to solve this problem or like Equinox where I taught, where I'm a member, does a good job um, at serving a particular clientele. And honestly, part of what they're doing is equating fitness and a luxury experience. And like that works for them. And okay, great. Now, of course, in their portfolio is also Blink Fitness, right? Which is in lower income neighborhoods and sells something that works in that demographic as well. I think that, you know, it's, I, I think it's, I mean, I think it's important that there be an aspect or a dimension of the fitness industry that is not just about like elitism and health is interconnected because I do think that's something that really, really sells. I mean, that's what motivated the whole boutique sector. You're in this special, very expensive luxury space. Those kinds of brands are never going to open in lower income neighborhoods or make themselves less accessible or have people in their advertising that are bigger or older or whatever, because it's not cool. What they're selling is exclusivity. However, 
I'd like to think that there is uh, money to be made, quite honestly, in serving a lower income market and in messaging and marketing that makes fitness accessible. And there are businesses doing that. I mean, Zumba is like a big success story in that regard in doing that. Um, And I think that, that there's something good. That being said, like I'm enough of like a, I don't know, a socialist, a social democrat at least, to say that I don't think the answer to fitness inequality in this country is going to come from like, you know, business owners doing the right thing. This is why I'm such a champion for investing in physical education and physical education that's actually like inspiring and like good and and rigorous as well and inclusive at the same time. We're seeing PE chopped Left and right. That's where most kids are going to encounter exercise. The other thing that I'm like an evangelist about is safe parks and community recreation spaces. Like that is so freaking important. If you know that in your community, you can walk a few blocks. There's a well-lit park where one kid can play basketball. The moms can walk around the track. There's a tennis court. There's a pool. I mean, that's the kind of thing that makes fitness part of everyday life and a lifestyle, not just a consumer commodity. And I think to me, that is like, it's a real tragedy in our society. Like basically everyone agrees exercise is good for you. Like, you know, that's why it's the halo effect. Like, oh, you work out. It's good. We we agree that, but we don't agree strenuously enough to be like, this is a right of citizenship or that this is something that should be a public good. And that I think is a problem. Yeah. Anytime I see a a basketball court that doesn't have a, a net on the rim, you know, I feel like that's a disservice to to the kids across that community. I mean, you yeah. shouldn't have to decide, you know, did that ball go in or was that bang shot, you know, in or out? Like, I felt like at some point somebody should put nets up on all those and as they need to get replaced, to get replaced. And those are like the little things that I think make a difference. But listen, I want to make sure everybody gets info on your, uh, on your book. So if you want to just give a little uh, tag about that and uh, we'll view this as kind of like the teaser to the... Uh, to the release, which is just still January 6th. Is that correct? Yes, it is. There's been some production delays, but it should be. Yes. So it's called um, Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession. And it goes from like the 1890s through the pandemic and Peloton. And I think that uh, folks in this industry will find it really interesting. I interviewed a lot of people who are around today and also did a ton of archival work. So it's available now for pre-order anywhere books are sold. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you on. Look forward to meeting you in person. Keep doing what you're doing. And, uh, Thank you. you know, in time, we will change the world and we will be living the realism of the halo sector. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. 